you really, really can look for the root causes of your sadness, look for the root causes of your loneliness, look for the root causes of why you're stuck. So when you're looking at something that you're taking a pill for, we're actually treating symptoms, we're not treating the root cause. So when you think about the sadness or the lack of community, let's look at the root causes of it. Let's look at the one step you can take to make a deeper connection or to find out what it is that actually is making you feel sad. Is it something that's in your life right now? Is it happening to you right now? And if it is, what step can you do to change it? And if it's not, then why are you replaying that today? How is that serving you? Because quite often we are so married to our past story that we forget to live the story in front of us right now. Reboot's episode R045 features Ranbir Poir, a TEDx speaker and a life coach who spent the early years of her life hiding from her school friends that during the summers, with her family, she was doing back-breaking labor in berry fields belonging to someone else. And there was abuse and trauma that led to a victim mentality for a long time. Until Renbeer had had enough of feeling sorry for herself, she'd had enough of hiding her pain behind a relentless drive to be the best at everything in life. Renbeer has a passion for teaching adults to help children navigate trauma so that the impacts of trauma don't carry forward into adulthood. In this conversation, you're going to hear Renbeer say some pretty incredible stuff, like... The cornerstone of relationships is communication. We're not raising children, we're raising adults. Trauma is associated with unprocessed memories. And if you don't move when you're stressed, it's like not putting on a Band-Aid when you're bleeding. Oh my goodness, I've found this to be true, and I've actually been using this since my conversation with Ranbeer. I'm so excited to share this story with you. So let's get to it. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Rambeer, thanks for inviting us into your life today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure and an honor. Well, and, and I, you, as soon as I saw you on the TEDx talk, and you shared about your life, and you shared about your passion for making sure that the children of today and the children of our future have a better shot at life than a lot of people did. I knew you are my kind of woman. <laughs> Thank you. I think that, I think it's that relatability because we can connect so deeply with the experiences we've had in our lives because every single person can understand what it feels like to go through hard times as a kid. Mm. Yeah, and as an adult too, so sure. 100% as adults, for sure, (laughs) for sure. Before we dive into your reboot, I want to know just a little bit about what you do today on behalf of kids and adults and creating a better life for all of us. Well, I, um, about 10 years ago, went through a very significant overhaul in my life, actually almost 12 years ago. And it looked around for a couple of years for answers for how I could manage through this sort of crisis that uh, I was going through and my husband was going through. It was business related. And I looked around, I couldn't find anything that satisfied the intellectual side of me and the spiritual side of me. And I wanted something that responded to my whole being, not just to my bank account, if you know what I mean. And so we put together a system to help ourselves through this crisis, so to speak. And people just started asking, how did you do this? And how do you do that? And you manage this? Can you teach me how? And so organically, I started doing this work, which is classified as coaching. So I'm a speaker, I'm a coach, I write, I have a podcast, Living Light Radio. And what I've done is try to create accessible resources for one, because I find that as you know, I was a crisis management coach. And most people when they're struggling, they don't 
often have the resources to go invest in themselves. So a priority for me was to create some programs that are free and that have quality substance to them. So I have a course called uh, 10 Techniques to Awaken Your Inner Champion, which is a 10-day program that gives you a taste of what it would feel like if you turn down the volume on your inner critic. Because the inner critic is one life challenge every single person on this planet shares. Yes. Yeah, we all have that nagging inner voice that tells us we're not enough or not enough of something, whether it's fast enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it is, mm-hmm. we all have that. So I created that program, which is free. And then I also found that the cornerstone of relationships is communication. And how we communicate with ourselves impacts how we communicate with others. So that comes back to that inner critic voice or the inner champion's voice. But a lot of us, when we can't communicate properly, we start yelling. So I also created a free class called Raise Your Words, Not Your Voice, based on the famous Rumi quote. And it's all about the idea that it's rain that grows the flowers, not thunder. So if you want to have a nourishing environment for your children, or even your spouse, or perhaps even a parent, or friendships, where how do you communicate where you are raising your words, not your voice? How do we elevate that conversation between each other? Because our relationships are most important and the communication is the backbone of that. So I have that as a free course as well. And then we have an awesome opportunity to share tools for parents and kids, teens um, and young preteen, I would say, called Awakening Your Inner Champion for Kids and Teens. And it's an on-demand program. So you can sit with your kid, your preteen, or your younger kids as well. And you can learn some techniques on how to help them when they're worried. What kind of things can you do to help boost their self-image? But most importantly, the truth of the matter is we are not raising children, we're raising adults. So how do you give your kids the tools to be resilient, flexible adults? And that's what that program encompasses. And it's all on demand. So you can watch it and rewatch it and do it at your own pace. So that's sort of an idea of some of our online options that we have available on our school, which is at innerchampion.me. Awesome. I want to put links to each of those resources in our show notes so that that'll be easy for people to find. That's just, that's cool. How long has it taken you to, first of all, understand what it is that people want based on what you already have sort of organically figured out, and then to build out the content so that now then you know it's useful and you're starting to get some feedback from people who are like, oh my goodness, here's what happened in my life when I used this this resource. Well, I have been coaching for 10 years this year. What I did was I started coaching adults in crisis and I saw a particular pattern and I could see that each one of them, though their external crisis looked like it was individual to them, the patterns were all tied to childhood trauma. I couldn't look away from that. So I started to create a program that was proactive versus reactive we have to do reactive in in our work. It's, you know, that there's no way around that. But I thought to myself, what if I could create something based on the results I'm getting with these adults and sort of reverse engineer and create something for children. And that's what I've done with the kids program. So the results um, are usually fairly quick. The idea is once we put our awareness on something, the humans are beautifully blessed that we have a conscious mind. And when we're consciously aware of something, it's very difficult to ignore it. And so our techniques are based very much in maximizing, you know, the science of the brain, as well as practical advice. So the ideas are, I try to keep them very simple, because I want them to be absorbed quickly and Kids have really good filters, so they can tell really quickly if you're trying to feed them fluff or if it's real. (laughs) So, you know, in order to work with kids, your stuff has to be on solid ground. And thank goodness, because we've had some great longevity there and uh, been able to create programs that speak to the truth that children hear. 
Plus on the other side with the adults, we've had incredible success. Mm, That's really cool. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited because I'm not sure when this episode is actually going to air, but I'm excited because you and I are working on a, a project that would bring some of your incredible teaching to some of the folks who listen to the Reboots podcast and are interested in journaling for kids. We're going to bring some of that stuff to them. And at some point, this conversation is going to be important to that. I think, you know, in terms of when we share this information and I'm guessing as part of the resources, there will be a link to sign up for the workshop or maybe even a replay of the workshop, depending on how the, the timing works. So thanks for working with me on that. I'm, I'm really excited. Me too, because the idea of being able to help children journal while they're struggling and during the struggle It's so important because a lot of trauma, if you read trauma research, is trauma is associated with unprocessed memories. So if we can give children tools in order to say, okay, this happened to me, let me place it and complete it and analyze it and look at it with my conscious brain so I can finish that and not leave it floating around. And I think when we were talking last, I was saying, I think it was the Dalai Lama that said, you know, if you think a, you know, a small problem is small, try sleeping with a mosquito, right? Sometimes <laughs> yeah. what seems like a mosquito to us adult, like a small little thing to a kid is a big deal to them. And how do we help them kind of get rid of that little mosquito? Because sometimes their trauma is something we consider very small, but it's a big deal to them. And sometimes mm-hmm. their trauma is really big. So how do we help them complete and process that memory so they can figure out, I mean, the phrase that I have trade, not trademark, but copyrighted is, is how did my past build me, not break me? Mm. And If we can teach children that in the moment, imagine what our future generations are going to look like. It'll be incredible. Before I even talked to you, I knew I was excited to talk to you. We've kind of already established that. But then as we talked and we're sharing basically what you're sharing here, and I explained that I I live in one of the highest concentrated populations of of foster children, not just in Arkansas, but in the country. And a whole lot of people I love and respect are heavily involved in solving that problem. A number of churches, a number of families, they've opened their home to the foster kids. They're adopting, even when it makes no sense on paper, Mm -hmm. you know. And so when you and I started talking about, well, gosh, is there a way to create something that we could provide to these these parents and their children who have dealt, their lives have begun in trauma? Mm-hmm. And you and I both got a little verklempt just thinking about that. Yeah. What does that look like for you, this opportunity? You've kind of already talked about that pretty often the people who need these resources the most don't have the money to provide it. And you and I are in this space where we want to do these things, but in order to keep doing these things, we have to figure out how to earn a living doing it. But Mm -hmm. that balance is pretty incredible. And so there's this kind of sneaky opportunity for us to maybe provide some resources for people who desperately needed. Why is, why does that resonate so with you? Well, for me, the idea that there are people that are willing to take these children in, to me, those are, that, those are true earth angels. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that you can take a child into your home and care for that child uh, is just so incredible. And they're a special type of human being. Yeah. I have my own children. So I haven't done that or taken that on. I take on different things and different causes. But I I want to recognize those people as being part of my village. And I feel strongly that I can contribute to them with some tools that I've created and that the webinar we'll do together will give them the opportunity to have some resources because being part of a village is contribution. And I feel great about doing that. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Well, let's kind of dive into your Reboots story. Sure. 
The first question that I like to ask people is, where do you share your story and why? I share my story in bits and pieces on my podcast and on my blog post, which are, you know, they're tied together. The podcast is Living Light Radio. So I am, and I share it in my speaking engagements. But basically, the reason I share my story is so people can feel supported. So people can see that you can have some really, really hard struggles and you can use them as a springboard versus a sinkhole. And how I did that and um, tools and tips on how to reframe your reality, right? Mm. So that's how I try to try to share and uh I don't dive into major details because I have young children and I try not to traumatize my kids. So I keep it a little bit high level for out of respect for my sons. Sure. Isn't that kind of the way we learn to do things when we share our story, we learn to come clean with someone in order to move forward and to heal. And that someone is safe And then we share in broader concentric circles in a less detailed sort of way to protect Mm -hmm. the people in our lives. And also, you know, who says we have to air all of our dirty laundry in public? And nobody says that, right? And I think, and I really think in some ways it's quite unhealthy because you get caught up in the story. Yeah. And for me, I have really good perspective on my story. And that's why I shared the phrase with you. I think about how my past built me versus broke me. But I spent, you know, until my early 20s, always focused on my victimhood, always focused on how my life broke me and how I had to struggle. And I could just, I was a survivor. And I met my husband when, and he kind of would challenge the idea of the survivor. I'm like, why wouldn't you use that to thrive? Mm. The situation didn't change. My past didn't change. It was how I leveraged it mm. that changed and how I stopped making it seem like it was happening to me now when really the abuse and the struggles already were past. And the life I currently lived was one of my own making, which was one of my own perseverance and my tenacity and my go-get-itness, you know, if that's a word, I just made it up. It's a word now. Yeah, I never gave up on myself. And why not focus on that versus beatings? Mm. And it just made more sense to me. So you, you were a victim of abuse then? Absolutely, yeah. I'm so sorry that happened. It should never, ever, ever happen. Thank you. It should never happen. And I really think the root of it is communication. Because back when I was growing up, I'm in my mid-40s, it was pretty normal to hit your kids. It was commonplace, right? So I associated it with a cultural belief when really everybody was getting hit in those days. So it didn't have anything to do with what color your skin was. And as we learn and grow and learn how to communicate and understand the impact of those things, it gets better, right? Mm, yeah. People grow and develop. And that's the part that matters the most, I think. So tell me about your earliest memory of just how life was, the good parts and the bad parts and kind of where you started finding inklings of, of the kind of person that you would become um, then and now? I am one of six children. I'm number five in the heap. And I'm the fifth daughter. My parents had five daughters and then a son. Finally, right? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, their first child was a boy and he died during childbirth. Mm. My mom's passed away, but she loved her children. Like she loved us so, so much. And my sister that's next to me in age is six, about six years older than me. So I don't know if I was uh, like an accident blessing, but (laughs) my brother and I are kind of like at the tail end of this thing. And I think it gave her completion, you know, to have that son who she lost at one point, right? So I really started to understand that as I got older. But when I was younger, it was very difficult because he was favored. And some of my earliest memory where you asked me about was actually about 
two and a half or something. And I remember falling and cutting my head on um, something. And I remember seeing blood on my face. And and it was in these, we used to go to pick berries every single summer from when we moved to Canada when I was two until I think I was about 15. Every summer, my mom would go to. That's hard work. It's hard work, rain or shine. Obviously, I wasn't picking berries at two years old, but you would stay close to your mom and, you know, there'd be a a group taking care of us little ones until we were old enough to start picking berries. And I felt deeply ashamed of this when I was old enough to realize that the other kids that I went to school with, because I grew up in a primarily white community, weren't going to pick berries. They were going to their summer cabins and different things like that. Where So I would make up stories so I could fit in. I would say I was going to my aunt's cabin for the summer in Vancouver. Oh. It was a cabin. It was like a tiny little room we lived in all summer long. And we worked uh, from dawn till dusk, rain or shine. And yeah. uh, it it's one of those things, like I said, I used to think about how burdensome that was and how unfair and so on and so forth. But then when I reframe and how it built me, I think about how incredible my work ethic is because of that. I think about how deep my connections are with my cousins and how I learned how to communicate really well because I was with older kids too, because some of the cousins were older and some were younger. I learned about the village You know, I learned all about community cooking and sharing and it, there was so much bad that happened, of course, but look at what I gained. Mm. So that's how I try to think of it. And it doesn't change reality. I'm not denying that it happened to me. I'm not denying that it was uncomfortable. I'm not denying that I hated it, but I choose to look at it from my inner champion's perspective, which was look at how cool I, I, you know, my work ethic is because of it. I don't give up because you go in rain or shine. So you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I come from a, a family of uh, sharecroppers. And so my mom, my aunts, my uncles have told stories of mm. how difficult it was to pick cotton back in mm. the 40s and the 50s. And you know, one of the poorest areas in a very poor state. It was hard work, and they also learned the value of community. So, yeah. yeah. At what point did your school friends know there was a lot more involved than visiting a cabin during the summer months? Did you ever explain there was a ton of hard work going on? No. Wow. Never. I was the student council president. I got excellent wow. grades. I was an athlete. I, I covered it up. I covered wow. everything up. Yeah. I just made sure that I would have a different life. So I kept my grades high. I made sure that nobody knew about that life that I had at home, because to me, that life was so, I felt so ashamed of it. And I hid it like I was embarrassed of my culture, I was embarrassed of my actual life. So I hid it from friends. And, you know, now, you know, when they hear the TED talk, people were like, what? I had no idea that you were struggling. You never showed it. You never skipped a beat. So I lived these two different lives. If you can imagine a kid trying to make sure the outside world, um, didn't think of her as a a victim of anything, you know, and it helped me uh, at the time manage the situation. That's how I coped. You know, a couple of questions to follow up on that. The the first one is um, as a student athlete, I'm real interested in, in the sport. And, And second of all, if that discipline translated from the hard work summers that you had, you have to make it to the end of the row and you have to get this much done before you can leave. Did that translate over into sports discipline so that you were an excellent athlete, whether you're talented or not? So for me, the sport was basketball and I also played volleyball. I still have a crooked finger from volleyball because I don't want (laughs) to stop. I wouldn't want anyone to know it was broken and it's still, I don't know, the listeners won't be able to see that. 
the crooked finger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I see. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was pretty tough. It was my therapy. So the sports I looked at as my outlet in order to process the stress in my life. For me, it was basketball. And there's something about, you know, being able to drive a ball into the ground and have that power and take those hard shots and check and to be able to do a wall sit and run and sprint and give her. That is so healthy for children to burn off their excess energy because what doesn't go out goes in to beat you up, right? So Mm. I was really good at expending my energy that way. Plus, we always had tons of chores to do around the house. So I think the more physical exertion you have in a day, the less opportunity you have to be stressed, to be honest, because it really burns. Wow. Say that again. (laughs) I think the more physical exertion you have in a day, the less opportunity you have to be stressed in your head because you're actually burning through your stress physically. And there's so much data and research on why exercise and movement is essential for stress. Because I always say in the free course, in the 10 techniques to awaken your inner champion, I talk about this, when you have anxiety or stress or depression, those kinds of feelings of heaviness, if you don't move, it's like not putting a bandaid on when you're bleeding. Wow. You got to move. And that movement really helps the brain put that stress right in its place. And it's incredible. So I always joke, the reason I'm not a mess is because I had so much physical activity growing up. We had an outlet, whether it was chopping woods or pulling the weeds out of the ground when we weren't berry picking or and playing basketball or riding my bike, doing my paper route, because I wanted to have my own money by grade two. I had already planned out. But Girl! Grade two, I, I just can't believe I had a paper route. And I took my little bike and I used to ride the bike and my paper was a little bit further away. And I was terrified of the dogs, these big dogs. Some One house had these Dobermans. And I still, I thought, no way, I have to get this work done. I need, I need to have a different life. So you're talking and I'm seeing my mom, who was an all-state athlete, right. basketball, and still to this day, Today, I experienced it. She has not been feeling well, had the flu, and we got out today and we did some shopping because she was ready. And as tired as she was, I can see this look in her eyes. And I've seen that look all my life. And it is intense. It is focused. And I finally figured out about 20 years ago, I looked at her, we were doing a huge project on my house and I looked at her and that was one of those looks. And I said, I know not to mess with Lou when Mm. I get, and and I said, I finally understand something. I said, you wanted the ball with a minute to go in the game when you played basketball, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah. And we won. Mm -hmm. And that's that look, that's that I'm tired, but it's almost over and I'm focused and we're getting ready to get it done. Do not get in my way. And I can see that with (laughs) you talking about whether it's basketball or volleyball or saying I'm getting past the Dobermans because I want to finish this job and I want my money. Is that a fair comparison? A hundred percent because there is nothing going to be in my way. Because I've already done the heavy lifting. And the reality is, is that the only thing between me and what I want is the space between my ears, right? That's the only thing. It's the thoughts in my own head. And as soon as I figured that out, everything shifted because there was nobody that could get in my head and think for me. No one could get up and exercise for me. No one can get up and write my podcast for me. Nobody can get up and love my children for me the way that I love them or my husband. So as soon as I realized that there's only one of me to have this output, I need to be involved versus looking outside of myself for some sort of crutch. I did the crutch thing for a bit too. I'm not saying that I didn't do that, but I'm saying that the the sooner you realize that the power is in you, and like I said, the space between your ears is your only distance to overcome. That's it. And that's the importance. That's why it's critical that what's between our ears is truth. It's not negativity, but it's also not 
sappy positivity. It's Gosh, yeah. here's the truth. This is what we're up against. Here are my resources that are available to me. Here's what I have control over. Here's what I don't have control over because worrying about what I have no control over is just not helpful. No. And here's what we're going to do and let's go execute it. Absolutely. One of the biggest tools I use in my coaching practice is that auditing. Let's look at what's real for you. Because the truth is, is our biggest disappointments come because we live in expectation land. Amen. Little house on the prairie does not exist. Right. So we, we think this is where we should be and this is where we are. So if you think about the two points, mark them down. You know, if you have a pen and piece of paper, just put an X and put reality and then put an X and put expectation. What I call the space in between, I call it the pit of despair. And <laughs> because we spend all this time thinking we should be here, we should be at this X, but we're at this X. And we fall in this pit of despair where we circle and spin our wheels and we're stuck in the mud because we're not willing to build the damn bridge. Oops, am I allowed to say that? Sure. We have a lot of damn bridges in Arkansas because okay. we have a lot of dams. A lot I think of dams. it's fine. Sorry. But, you know, instead of focusing on building the bridge, we sit there in the mud and we're stuck in this pit of despair. So the best thing you can do is be realistic. Get in that auditing space. What's real? And then only focus on your next best step right? The next part of the bridge that you're going to build. What should I do next to make sure that this bridge to my expectation is built? And then we make that thing stupid simple. Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Yeah. The kiss rule. Yeah. It's like the next step is to put a brick in the wall. Well, what do you got to do to get the brick in the wall? Pick it up. Yeah. And it's the same as like when I tell people if their relationship is falling apart. Well, your relationship did not fall apart in that day or that hour in that argument. Your relationship fell apart over a period of months, if not years. So when you're replacing a pattern, you need to put a new pattern in place. And for the brain, it takes around, some say about 66 days of doing something every single day to create a new habit. And the way I do things, if I miss a day, I start counting again. So it really takes about a good three months to have a new way of being in place because that's the reality. You know, no, nobody is always perfect at getting it right the first time. So the more you condition right. yourself to walk a new path, which is just one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's so empowering. Okay. Before we kind of move forward a little bit into what your life is like today and parenting and how that how that translates from what you've learned about you and just the the toughness that you've developed over the years. I want to carefully go into the space of childhood abuse mm -hmm. and how we can prevent that and then what to do when we see it. What is my role as someone who doesn't have kids in helping end childhood abuse? So yeah, that's a whole lot of questions. I apologize. That's no, okay. I think the start of ending childhood abuse, a lot of people that are abusers have been abused. Yeah. So it's about giving them the resources and tools that they need to heal their own hearts because they've experienced significant amount of trauma in their childhood. And the cycle continues because there is not enough conversation. There's so whole much shame associated with abuse and it's so delicate and it's so private. And as a person who's been abused, there's times when you think, did I do something? I have experienced all types of abuse mm -hmm. and it's uh, access. Who has access to your house? Because when we were younger, Tons of people were in and out of our house. Our parents wouldn't have even known. So for me, my mom wouldn't have known that I went through that necessarily because people were in and out of the house all the time. So pay attention to who's with your kids and who's spending time with them alone. And so I'm mindful of that. But the greatest thing you can do is actually explain what's right and wrong to you can start when they're toddlers because you know, if you label the body parts with their real names rather than their fake names, the kids start to understand 
that there's nothing to be ashamed of because you have a body created by God Mm. and you shouldn't be ashamed of what your body part is called for one. So I think it's explaining to children that this is the scientific or the technical term for that body part that's good and that you shouldn't be ashamed of having that body part. I think the shame comes and we're, we're always trying to, like we are so busy trying to protect our kids and their bodies that the kid starts to associate shame with their body. And as soon as a kid is comfortable in their body and someone tries to approach them, they'll be like, uh-uh, that's not right, right? Because my body is wholesome and it's for playing and for doing, you know, little kid things, not for engaging in this kind of behavior. In regards to physical abuse, like the hitting and all of that, I think a lot of that has to do with how we communicate. So a parent could be trying to explain something very poorly to a child and they'll go, okay, you're not listening to me and slap them. When really, if they sat down and said, you know what, when you don't listen to me, it makes mommy feel like mommy doesn't matter and that you don't care about how I feel or how I'd love to have dinner with you at this time or it's that sentence, when you do that, it makes me feel. And it's good for the kid to understand how to communicate how he or she feels, but it's so good for us parents because a lot Mm. of the times we've never been given that opportunity growing up to say to our parents, mommy, when you force me to eat broccoli, it makes me feel nauseous, you know? (laughs) It was just eat it and that was it. But these days I will see witness people going to restaurants and the, the order for the adult is so complicated. The waiter's taking notes, dressing on the side, know this, know that. The kid orders, and if the kid tries to make any adjustments to his or her meal, the parent freaks out. So I'm allowed to have preferences, but you're not. Like all of that kind of respect in mind, being mindful of what, if the kid eats all sorts of vegetables and doesn't like broccoli, then don't force it, right? Right, right. So learn how to have some bandwidth there as a parent and also learn how to communicate and use your words and raise those words versus raising your hand. And practice, practice, practice. It takes a lot of practice. And I think that's where people get confused by movies like The Secret and all of this law of attraction stuff, because they think they can put it on a vision board and say an affirmation, and that's enough to make that real in your life. And it's not true. <laughs> that's that's right. Yes. Right? It's not true. Yeah. What's true is what's real. And what's real is what's applied and practiced. And you mm. have got to really, really, truly try. And that's the importance of grace and forgiveness in this life. Oh, so much. So Even so the true. people we don't want to forgive, even people who may not, air quote, deserve it. How is that important? I actually wrote a post on how I healed my own heart. And I talk about the idea is that you actually don't need to forgive so much, but you need to accept that it happened to you. And that's what was the biggest part in my healing is learning to accept that I had suffered Mm. and that the suffering was over. And that's what led me to forgive myself because what happened Mm. to me, some of that stuff isn't forgivable. I shouldn't be Mm. asked to forgive that because I can't condone that behavior, but I can accept that that person had serious mental health issues because no one would abuse a kid like that if they didn't. And Mm -hmm. so in that acceptance, I had natural forgiveness of the situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. The acceptance is a big step. Yeah. And and the whole notion that you ever have to allow someone back into your life who that's not a thing ever. You you don't have to do that. Yeah. I don't think it's on you to have to allow that in your space. It's on you to accept that it happened to you. It's on you to go do the work and heal yourself. That's on you because that person is not going to come and help you out because they just (laughs) shoved you to the ground, right? They've just stepped on you. So you can't go and go, I don't know. It's not realistic to me to go and say, I need you in my life or I've got to forgive you and you hurt me in that manner. No, but like I said, it is on me to go get the tools I need to heal my own heart and to accept that it happened, and then to ask that question again, how did this build me, not break me? Yeah. Now, 
you and I are friends. Yes. We've known each other for a long time in a scenario, and I never knew you were a victim of any sort of abuse because mm-hmm. you never shared that. What is the best way I can support you as you walk the beginning of this journey of acceptance of what has happened and to forgive yourself? How can I best be mm. your friend through this? Such a good question and such a big hearted question. For me, I and for the people that I've worked with through these situations, I think the best thing you can do is just to say, I'm here for you. I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions, but I will listen. And it's the sounding board without the judgment or don't fuel the fire, so to speak. So I would say, I'm here for you. I'm listening to you. And you, and then I would look for ways that I could tie successes into it. So I would look for ways like, oh, is that, you know, what's interesting is that you went through that, but look at how you created this in your life. That's incredible. So I would look to anchor the person to successes versus the trauma. Like I would try to anchor them in the present moment, what's right in their life now. But at the same time, I would definitely, definitely just say I'm here to listen. Because I think that's all a person needs is a sounding board. And not to, like I said, not to make it a bigger pity party, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like a lot of times people will like, oh, you you just got dumped. Let's dump on your ex-husband or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Just go, okay, this happened to you. I'm really sorry you're suffering. Okay, what can what can it do you want to go for a walk? Do I get them active, get them moving and um, you know, that kind of thing. Activity and experiences, go to a movie together, go for a walk together, those kinds of things. That's a really good way to support someone who's dealing with trauma in the moment. Mm. Is bringing them to reality because the trauma has passed. Yeah. And so that's kind of the thing about this and and in my experience with grief, I had so many people telling me that I needed to just get past it. My dad was 80, he he lived a great life, and it's time to move on. Now, I played a role in some of that because I was stuck and I was spinning my wheels and I was mad at people when they reached out and I was mad at people when they ignored me because I had exhausted them. So, when I experience people who are dealing with trauma or grief now, and they seem to be stuck in the same pattern, in your experience, what's the best way to continue to support them and make sure that they're not reliving the trauma every single time they tell the story? Because that's what I was doing, and it wasn't Mm. helpful. There came a moment when I was able to just do what you've suggested accept it and then move forward there's a couple of things there's a couple of things one is that you can ask them about their like if they're going through grief or something and they miss somebody you can ask them to share a great happy story about that person because that always brings a smile to your face i can share funny stories about my mom leaving a message on my voicemail which was ridiculously funny and (laughs) you know you can share those kinds she's passed it broke my heart and all of that. And I struggled really with it as well. Journaling, as you know, from your work, that journaling is huge. There's something about putting pen to paper that allows your brain to finish processing. Like we talked about trauma is that unprocessed memory. So journaling really helps process that memory. And like I said, getting people moving and doing some kind of activity with you helps the emotion in that movement really helps your body process it as well. So it helps things move faster. And so I would use those types of tools, but I would be there to listen for sure. Like I said, like the the listening and helping them vent because you need to vent when you've gone through a trauma. And then yeah. it's about processing. Once you've vented and if the person is continually venting, then you need to get them a journal, getting them writing and moving. Oh, that's such good advice. Thank you. And, and you you know that from your work, right? It, it moves mountains. Well, in my experience, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I say is, I, I use this analogy often, and I think it's an old Eastern analogy 
um, is that kind of when we have trauma or something very stressful in our lives, we are looking and facing this mountain. And we think we need to climb up this mountain. And my advice is rather than climb up it, be the river that gently goes around it. Oh, wow. Find a way to go, this is in my life, this trauma. How am I going to navigate it like a beautiful river versus hiking up the top, losing my breath, losing my energy, <laughs> losing everything along the way up this hill or this mountain or this terrain or this difficult path? Why not be the beautiful river and accept that the mountain is there? Mm. Well, we're almost out of time. Yeah. We've got a little bit of time to... To just kind of wrap up our conversation, I'm I'm just like blown away. Oh. And so I feel no need to guide us to any sort of a conclusion because uh, I think all I really need to do is stop talking and let you talk some more. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, my cheeks are going red as I'm feeling I that that's that. very, very kind of you. I, that's one of the things that's really interesting to learn how to do is to accept compliments. When you have been through the type of life challenges that I have, that's actually something I had to learn how to do is to just to say thank you and not to make excuses for why you shouldn't say anything good about me. Me too. And it's interesting that that's quite a process and quite a bit of work to get to that point to just to say thank you. I feel strongly that we all have something so important to give. We have this bright light inside of us and it's about allowing space between our thoughts in order to sort of find out what our messages to the world because yours is important and so is the next person's. And, you know, with the lack of community and the lack of the village and connectedness these days, we're so isolated behind our screens and the keyboard courage that we forget that that human connection is the most important aspect of our lives and get out and connect and share your story because you'd be surprised how many people have a similar one. You know, I'm about halfway through a book called Lost Connections. I binged listened this weekend oh, and cool. it is spectacular. I don't have the, the hard copy in here, yeah. but it talks about the importance of community and how it's so much more powerful than antidepressants for most of us. Oh. Obviously, a lot of people have oh. to take the drugs, but too often we're misdiagnosed because we're isolating in plain sight. And he lays out a really yeah. detailed plan for how we, we make authentic connections with other people. That, and also the, like there's the concept of functional medicine, which is, you know, the latest and greatest out of the medical schools. And the research takes about 17 years to reach your family physician. So when you're looking at something that you're taking a pill for, we're actually treating symptoms. We're not treating the root cause. Right. So when you think about the sadness or the lack of community, you know, let's look at the root causes of it. Let's look at the one step you can take to make a deeper connection or to find out what it is that actually is making you feel sad. Mm. Is it something that's in your life right now? Is it happening to you right now? And if it is, what step can you do to change it? And if it's not, then why are you replaying that today? How is that serving you? Because quite often we are so married to our past story that we forget to live the story in front of us right now. Ooh. It's so valuable to ask those questions of yourself. And I joke, and I was joking with you earlier, I advise my clients to talk to themselves, you know, have, well, that, sure. have, have that dialogue and say, you know, how does this serve me? Because it either serves my victim or my hero. So which one do I want to feed? Because you really, really can look for the root causes of your sadness, look for the root causes of your loneliness, look for the root causes of why you're stuck in XYZ. And then Build a plan to get to the root. Don't build a plan to deal with the symptom because you will always come short. See, I told you if I just stopped talking, you would say something brilliant. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> I've been Let's, doing it for a while, so i got lots of practice. So what are some books that you would, you would recommend or that have meant something to you? 
a book that I love is called Psycho Cybernetics. And you get the original version. It's uh, I'm Canadian. So it's like eight ninety nine Canadian. It's a free American, right? <laughs> Our dollars not doing very well. But so Psycho Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. And he talks about the self image. And that's a really important concept in the framework of the work that I do. I am married to uh, a, a fellow that has his master's in science. He's a, a professional engineer. And what they look for is what is a first principle? What's repeatable? What can you duplicate? And so, and what can you count on? And your self image is one of those things. And that's why I've centered my work around that how you speak to yourself when you're alone with your thoughts. Master that, and everything else falls into place. So, that's one great book. Another great book that I read, which Help me understand things from a different perspective. And it's The Greatest Salesman in the World by Augmentino. Oh, yeah. You remember that? And what's really interesting about that particular book is in there, he has something called a scroll. And you read these scrolls every day for, I think, 45 weeks or something. The only adjustment I made in those scrolls was he says, I will this and I will that. And I changed that all to I am. Mm. And the I am statement is something I work on every year. For this year, my statement is I am whole. Last year, my statement was I am courageous. So that's my theme for the year. Uh, that's a great book. The book called Think and Grow Rich. You can't, you know, yeah. can't skip over that. Yeah, which was really empowering for me. I grew up very poor, so I had this sort of false belief that I had to earn money in order to have value in my life and even though I've been successful in that area and I live in one of Canada's wealthiest communities, I look around me and I see the same problems you would see in any community. So understanding that money isn't the be all end all is an important lesson in that. But I love how the author's study of these successful people allows you to understand how visualization works and how all of those things can come together for you in a meaningful way, not in a vision board affirmation type of way that maybe is there for a minute and not. So there's some real depth to that right. work. And I think I'm trying to remember the name of this other book. It's by Pema Chodron, I think. And I think it's Getting Unstuck. And that was a really good one. So there's a bunch. <laughs> there's a bunch. I know. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Yeah. We're like sisters from another mother or something. Yeah. I thought you would nerd out on books and stuff. You know, Tracy, when I was in grade three, I remember reading, I can't remember, it was a record amount of books. I don't remember what the number was, <laughs> but I love to learn. I love to learn. I can't help it. I think the sign of an, a smart person, an intellectual person is one that says, I'm okay to be wrong. I'd love to learn more. I, I don't, I'm not married to my beliefs because I don't know, there could be something better around the corner. Boy, that's been so liberating for me to have figured out at age 50 that for the past five years, I've realized, I spent the first two or three years of that realizing how wrong I've been about so many things and regretting that and beating myself mm. up. And it's just been the last two years. I'm like, I can say that I'm about 90% certain about something, you know, when I'm teaching. And then my friend Ed has taught me that it's okay to say, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong because I've been so dead wrong before and I don't ever want to be completely wrong again because I understand that I'm just human and I mm -hmm. don't have the full picture and I don't have all the knowledge and the learning. So, yeah. Yeah, especially in today's world, we really have to question everything. Or to say, I don't care enough to read um, 30 years worth of material to be an expert no. to understand these complexities in life. I don't know. But the interesting thing is, is that a lot of the great progression that happens in a field usually comes from somebody outside of that field. Yeah. Who and I don't have the, the data to share with you and I can try to dig it up. Yeah. But there is a lot of progress that happens in a particular field from somebody completely outside of the field that doesn't have a degree in it. Innovation. <laughs> Innovation, because it's it's fluid thinking and fluid intelligence. And that is something that is built up through things like meditation. You can improve your fluid intelligence by 23% in eight weeks by meditating. It's incredible. Really? Yeah. Is there a time frame on that? Or just five minutes or? Uh, well, it's usually about 15 to 20 minutes a day. Okay. 
Yeah, because I teach meditation in schools and uh, through my clients and so on. So I created a meditation program, and uh, it's incredible how much it impacts your crystallized intelligence is that memorized stuff and the fluid mm-hmm. is how you apply and can make use of it. So it's pretty awesome. Useful. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Before I let you go, yes, I'm going to make a confession about reading. Okay. So in the first grade, I was so excited to get all of these new textbooks. I mean, I'm brand new in the first grade mm-hmm. and within the first month I had read all of the books cover to cover. Yeah. And then I stopped doing my homework, even though we had time to do it in class. Right. And I was getting goose eggs, zeros, zeros, zeros. And I was not even halfway through the first grade before there was a parent-teacher conference. Interesting. And Miss Rogers had to tell my parents that I wasn't doing their my homework. So my mom and dad bring me in with Miss Rogers. Why are you not doing your homework? Because I'm bored. Well, why are you bored? Because I read all the books. You read all of the books. I read all of the books. I know what they say. So why should I do the homework? And Miss Rogers had remembered that in the library, I had wanted to go to the sixth grade book. There was this book that I really wanted to read. Mm. Only I couldn't go read that book because I was in first grade. Miss Rogers said, if you start doing your homework, I'll let you pick out a book from the sixth grade book. Wow. So exciting. And I said, okay. And I started doing my homework and I started reading a lot of books. I read a gazillion books and it was awesome. Oh, I love reading. Lately, my reading has been tied more to research or work. And I recently read two books, Michelle Obama Becoming. I read it very quickly. And then I read a book called Educated, which is somewhere here in my pile. <laughs> but I read Educated in two days when my son was sick because he was sleeping. And I thought, you know what, it's, it was such an interesting read to learn about how different people live in different parts of North America, let alone somewhere else. And, it, you know, not going to school and not being able to go to hospitals or doctors and, and to challenge my own beliefs and thinking that it's, it was really eye opening. So I think books are a gateway to not only education, but imagination and imagination is where the magic happens and how we create innovation and growth and so much goodness in the world Mm. by activating that. We could totally talk for another three or four hours, but I need to let you go. Thank you. And I can't wait to keep working with you and for our listeners to hear your story and um, to start teaching some of our friends some really awesome tools. And I can't wait to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor and a pleasure. And I appreciate you creating space for me to share my experience. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Now for more about Ranbeer and from Ranbeer and her work and the courses she offers, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash episode four five. We're going to have links to the books and the topics we discussed, plus Rambeer's Living Light Radio and some of her free resources. One more thing before you dive into your next thing. If you're listening because you're contemplating a big change in your life, or maybe someone or something else has made a difficult change that impacts you, I'd really like to give you some resources that have helped and are helping me navigate the loss of loved ones, a job loss, and the self-doubt and perfectionism that still sometimes trips me up. It's a combination of quick journaling habits that have helped me tremendously. And while I don't think these techniques are the only tools most of us need to navigate change, they can help. So if you're interested, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. Plug in your email address and I'll send you three of the most important rapid journaling habits that keep negative self-talk from paralyzing me. Hey, thanks a whole bunch for listening. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. Deo Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. 
It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.